part two of our Ukraine series, we pick up with our history of U.S. interventionism in Ukraine. From the Maidan coup of 2014, the civil war in the Donbass, the Biden family investments and political ties in Ukraine, and the beginnings of Russiagate. We are teaching a history that you will not find in U.S. and Western corporate media. The first casualty of war is the truth, and we are in the midst of a media cold war. The corporate media has shut down all critical debate and become a megaphone for the uniparty. Democrats and Republicans, neoliberals and neoconservatives, all representing the same for-profit interests of the military-industrial complex. This uniparty has pulled off a massive PR feat. It has weaponized public sympathy toward Ukrainians in order to reinvigorate a cold war of unforeseen proportions and unprecedented global risks. World War III, nuclear war, and an imminent climate collapse that is already in progress, but will only be accelerated with the expanded use of fossil fuels, something that war always requires. So join us for this critical discussion and become a patron to support our rebellious work at patreon.com slash crawdads and taters. We can do this work with you, but not without you. Good morning, taters. Good morning, crawdads. How's it going? Good. It's nice to be recording again. It is nice to be recording. And on that note, we want to apologize for the lapse in frequency of our podcasts lately. It's been a really busy summer and we haven't recorded much. But we have been working on things, and we have a couple episodes in the queue, and what we've lost in frequency, we're hoping to make up for in depth. So thank you so much for your patience and for sticking with us. Yeah, and I just wanted to thank all of our Patreon donors, especially Liz Fant, and honestly, we need more of you. That record inflation, you could sign up to be a donor for as little as $3 per month, which is less than one gallon of gas right now. <laughs> And that would really make a huge difference for us to be able to continue this work on the podcast. Thank you so much for your support. We're going to continue to stand together with allies in Europe and send an unmistakable message that we will defend every inch of NATO territory, every single inch, with a united, galvanized NATO. One movement. That's why I've moved over 12,000 American forces along the borders with Russia, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Romania, etc., because they move once. Granted, if we respond, it is World War III, but we have a sacred obligation. Okay, thanks, Biden. Today we want to go back to the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine. Where we left off with our last episode, we had just given you part one of the history of U.S. intervention in Ukraine. We need to finish this history because, as Biden says, we're headed towards World War III. And the U.S. has now allocated close to $60 billion for this war in Ukraine. So today, we'll bring you part two of our U.S. interventionist history in Ukraine. We're exposing this history because it needs to be done, because the corporate media won't do it. In fact, this proxy war in Ukraine has been the most propagandized war either of us has ever witnessed in U.S. history. But we're not the only ones who think so. Here's John Pilger, award-winning Australian journalist, writer, scholar, and internationally acclaimed documentary filmmaker. Well, I've spent my career working in the mainstream, and I've covered probably seven, eight, nine shooting wars. I've never seen 
a, cover, a coverage so utterly consumed by a tsunami of jingoism uh, and of manipulative jingoism as this one. And that's why nothing should be trusted. Uh, I say that to people all the time. I said, unless you're going to sit in front of your television and deconstruct what you see, actually take it away with you and, and check it and uh, uh, try to verify it as much as you can. And if you can't, to discard it. Well, most people don't have the time to do that. And here's British musician Brian Eno's take on the propaganda. What I would say I find most remarkable is the, the great comfort that people find in all agreeing with each other. So I, I have never seen any international event so universally and so simplistically presented. You know, it's more and more being, the story is being told as if there's no context, no history, nothing happened before 17 days ago. Suddenly these Russians turned up in Ukraine huge surprise you know and of course i don't support the invasion of ukraine at all and i certainly don't support what's happening to the people there but whenever i try to mention that this is a this comes as a result of a history which we are involved in we had a part in quite a big part in people say oh so you're a putinist are you you support putin and this kind of them and us mentality seems to have dominated absolutely everybody, including all the liberals that I know. What we all have to do, I think, it's very clear from our conversation that we agree about quite a lot of things, and I can't think that it's only us. So we have to have the courage to actually start saying these things. I mean, it is very difficult because people really don't want to hear it. It's so comfortable, everybody agreeing about things and all taking the same point of view and feeling that we're all allied together in a very good cause and you know there's no ambiguity about it there's this evil bastard called putin on the one side and then there's us good christians on the other side um we we really must as much as we possibly can say to everyone we know it's a bit more simply complicated than that you know there's there's really a lot of other stories besides this single one that we're being told and I mean, it takes, it does take courage to do it. You, you feel, you can feel the pressure. If you even start to make a sentence about this, if you even say it might be a bit more complicated than that, you can feel the look yeah. coming on. But um, if, if enough of us can do it and say, yes, we're sympathetic, but we're not completely hoodwinked. What do you think about those clips? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with both of them that this is the most propagandized war we have ever seen, possibly. Yeah. And that any, you know, dissenting voices that want to portray like information like we did in our last episode about NATO and One Inch Eastward and the red lines of Russia and how this war was provoked by the U.S. have just been completely shut out of the mainstream media. Absolutely. And social media as well. I was an anti-war activist back during Iraq in the early 2000s. And um, I thought that propaganda was insane. Just, you know, the level of Muslim bashing and just pro-war, yellow ribbon propaganda all over the place. I thought that was 
incredible. I think what's so scary to me about this is that I see really zero dissent anywhere except for, you know, just a few voices. And it's not just the United States. It's like the United States and all of Western Europe has this uniform position. And if you deviate from that position, that NATO aligned bombing weapons must escalate toward World War III position, you're called a Putin apologist. You're called a Kremlin propagandist. You're silenced. You are shadow banned on Facebook like I have been, you know, like I used to have an actual audience on Facebook for my political posts and I have been completely shadow banned there. Like unless I post photos of pretty pictures, I get zero to three responses on my posts. Mm -hmm. It's like amazing. I used to get hundreds and I get almost nothing now. I mean, it's I've been wiped off the the Facebook map. Yeah, Facebook is not a great platform for leftists anymore. It never has been, yeah. but it's, I mean, this Ukraine thing, it, I don't know what the algorithms say, but like as soon as you speak out against the, the U.S. position on Ukraine, you're just gone. You're gone. Maybe if you put a Ukraine flag in your profile picture, you'd <laughs> get more uh, response. Like two or three Ukrainian flags. That would really confuse the algorithms, <laughs> I think. <laughs> oh. So anyway, back to our history. We really recommend that you go back and listen to episode one, where we cover the history of U.S. interventionism, starting from the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1991, through the color revolutions in Ukraine in 2004, through the Maidan coup. It's really crucial to understand this history and that it does not start with the Russian military operations of February 2022. The Maidan protests in late 2013 and 2014 resulted in the overthrow of a democratically elected government in Ukraine. The U.S. has long been using Ukraine as a staging ground for a proxy war against Russia. This coup in 2014 was orchestrated by the United States through actors such as Victoria Newland, Jake Sullivan, Joe Biden, and John McCain. These are verifiable facts. This is what episode one covers. And I think it's worth noting that Victoria Newland and Jake Sullivan are now key actors in the Biden administration's Ukraine policy. This foreign policy team has been planning this Ukraine proxy war since at least 2014 and likely earlier. And they have coordinated with neo-Nazi parties in Ukraine, like Svoboda and Right Sector, who provoked a lot of bloody violence during the Maidan protests. A few U.S. journalists tried to document the U.S. connection to these Nazi groups, and they've been completely banned and censored inside of the U.S. Here are a couple recent clips of former U.S. officials admitting that the U.S. does in fact carry out coups. A lot of us have known this for a long time. This isn't surprising news. But it is noteworthy that they are finally saying the quiet part out loud. Here's CNN's Jake Tapper interview with Trump's former national security advisor, John Bolton. One doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup. Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, yeah. not here, but, you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. Okay, so here John Bolton is talking to Jake Tapper about Trump's attempted coup that failed. What's really noteworthy to me about this clip is that 
he's like, yeah, I do it all the time, Jake. And it actually is a lot of work. <laughs> and I do it all the time. I think we can probably guess he was talking about Bolivia or Venezuela where he was planning it. I'm not sure. Oh, but multiple places. Multiple places. Multiple places, I'm yeah. sure. Like, this is part and parcel of U.S. foreign policy. Here's venture capitalist and former head of the CIA, James Woolsey, speaking on Fox News once again about how the U.S. plans coups. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably. But uh, it was for the good of the system in order to avoid the communists from taking over. For example, in Europe... uh, uh, in 47, 48, 49, uh, the Greeks and the Italians, we... We don't do that CIA. now, though. We don't mess around other people's well, elections, Jeff. Only for a very good Can cause. Can you do that? Do a Vine video on a former CIA director. Only for a very good cause in okay. the interests of democracy. All right, thanks for being here. Well, yum, 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 yum. Uh yeah, we only have num 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 nums for good causes. <laughs> <laughs> like overthrowing communism. Yeah, and uh, protecting the system, by which he means capitalism. And, uh, oh yeah, democracy. Yeah, and eliminating what Noam Chomsky once called the threat of a good example. All over the world. All over the world. He only named a few examples, but I know um, William Blum has mentioned more. Yeah, William Blum was an ex-State um, Department employee. He was like a computer programmer for the State Department. And he resigned in disgust after he became aware of all of these different CIA interventions all around the world. And he wrote at least two books before he died. One is called Killing Hope. The other is called Rogue State. And they both detail country by country U.S. CIA interventions and the overthrows of democratically elected governments all over the world. I would highly recommend those books for anyone who wants to educate themselves about, you know, a broad overview of U.S. CIA interventions all over the world. Yeah, and speaking of U.S. CIA interventions, we're talking about Ukraine. And anyway, the government that the U.S. installed in Ukraine in 2014 was, of course, a pro-Western, pro-NATO government that has been antagonizing Russia militarily ever since. Yes, and in spite of numerous warnings from all kinds of experts, including uber warhawks like Robert McNamara and Henry Kissinger, who now ironically seem like doves, Ukraine has continued to seek a path to join NATO against the expert advice of all of these people and many, many more. The Biden regime made it clear that they were very open to this development of Ukraine joining NATO. Though it, of course, violated all of the red lines that Russia had outlined for decades. And we're not just talking about Putin. We're talking about over decades and decades, like since the 1950s, like the USSR and Russia had red lines around NATO expansionism. And Biden has made this his project. His Defense Department, which is run by former Raytheon board member Lloyd Austin III, and corporate lobbyist Anthony Blinken has been clearly set on this path for U.S. proxy war against Russia and has ignored every possible avenue to de-escalate it and avoid bloodshed. Very clear provocation. I do want to say, you know, Putin and Russia do bear some responsibility, but as socialists in the United States, we believe that as renowned Marxist Karl Leibniz said, 
the main enemy is at home. Russia is a capitalist state, and Putin is definitely no friend to communism. The Communist Party is the largest opposition party to Putin. But it is our primary goal to highlight the crimes of our own country. And we also need to address the propaganda coming from the U.S. media and politicians that support the crimes of our country. That's right. So I think that pretty much summarizes what we covered in episode one. And we have a lot more to get into today to bring you up to date. So first off, we want to very briefly cover some of the direct results of the Maidan coup. These are things that the U.S. corporate media refuses to cover. Yeah, going back to the immediate results of the Maidan, Ukrainian President Yanukovych, who, as we've reminded you before, was democratically elected, was forced to flee to Russia under threat of his life as Nazi-led protesters advanced on parliament. The next day, Alexander Turchinov was appointed as interim president and proclaimed he would seek closer relations with the EU. His cabinet was suspiciously headed by Yatsenyuk, the U.S. hand-picked prime minister, as revealed in the Newland Pyatt call that we featured in the last episode. Yeah, that's that infamous call that we played where Victoria Newland and Jeffrey Pyatt basically conspire to pick a U.S. puppet to be Ukraine's prime minister in the interim before the next election. Yeah, and it just happened to be that he was the one who was chosen by the parliament. And then under this interim government, Andriy Parubi was appointed as national security chief. Andriy Parubi was the co-founder of the Social National Party of Ukraine in 1991 with Ole Tanibak. This was a Nazi party that used the Wolf's Angel as one of its logos. This Wolf's Angel goes back to the SS under Hitler. And Andriy Perubi was heavily involved in the Maidan protests, and this was his reward for helping lead the Nazis in this protest. Mm-hmm. And Tani Bach was one of the people standing arm in arm on the stage during the Maidan protests with John McCain and Chris Murphy as the coup was taking place, while Victoria Newland handed out sandwiches to protesters. There are multiple photos online, if you want to just Google it, uh, of Tani Bach on, on the stage with them. If you, you know, if you Google Victoria Newland and Tani Bach or Chris Murphy and Tani Bach, you'll see pictures of them on the stage during the protest. And there are also multiple photos of Tani Bach online giving the Nazi salute. There's no question here that Tani Bach is Nazi affiliated. And in talking about Perubi, we just want to point out here that the government that the U.S. preferred in Ukraine had actual neo-Nazis in positions of power. And I don't think we can overemphasize this point. The U.S. opposed the government of Yanukovych. That was the twice democratically elected government of Ukraine, which was neutral both to the EU and to Russia. But the U.S. preferred a government that would do its bidding economically and politically. This is where Andriy Perubi comes in as national security chief. He was a member of this Nazi party. And since then, the neo-Nazis inside the Ukrainian government have been very influential on a policy level as well. One of the very first actions of the new interim government was to outlaw the Russian language in Ukraine. This was hugely polarizing politically, given that roughly half of Ukrainians speak Russian. 
And in a country where Ukrainians and Russians have lived side by side, have worked together and intermarried together for decades, this outlying of the Russian language was a direct attack on Russian-speaking Ukrainian citizens, politically dividing a country. And it has been a key part of the far-right agenda of neo-Nazi groups like the right sector. And these policies created the impetus for the largely Russian-speaking regions of Ukraine to begin protesting the new government, which I think they had every right to. It's worth noting that in a 2013 census of Crimea, 82% of the Crimean population spoke Russian at home. And this is the part of Ukraine with the highest proportion of Russian-speaking and Russian-identifying people. So yeah, let's go back to 2014 for a minute. Just after the Maidan coup, the Crimean parliament proclaimed that they still considered democratically elected Yanukovych to be the president. And since they were in opposition to the results of the coup, Crimea decided to hold its own elections in May of 2014 and have a referendum on joining Russia. At this point, because Crimea was in opposition to the U.S.-installed coup government, the Crimean parliament asked Russia to come in for security purposes. And then Crimea held a referendum on joining Russia. This referendum has been portrayed by Western media and many U.S. liberals as a vote that took place at gunpoint. Western media also describes this as the Russian invasion of Crimea or annexation of Crimea. But what they do not tell us is that no shots were fired and there was no clash or conflict between Russian and Crimean troops. Again, Russia had been called in for security purposes. Eyewitness testimony stated that the Crimean military troops in fact stayed in and never left their barracks while the Russian military was there to oversee the security of Crimea. And the referendum was a general ballot of the people. so everyone could vote. It passed with overwhelming numbers. In fact, 96% of the Crimean people who voted were in favor of joining Russia. 96%. <laughs> so while the Western media refer to a Russian invasion or annexation of Crimea, we have to remember that the Crimean people willingly and in great majority voted to join Russia after the United States installed an anti-Russian coup government in Ukraine in 2014. And this was a government with a far-right neo-Nazi agenda. This was the same year that a bloody civil war was launched by the Ukrainian government against the people of the Donbass region. Yeah, we haven't really mentioned Donbass yet, so to clarify, when we talk about the Donbass, we're talking about Luhansk and Donetsk. Two eastern regions also heavily comprised of Russian-speaking, Russian-identifying people. And so in 2014, in response to the Maidan coup and installation of this government in Ukraine by the United States, Luhansk and Donetsk also held referendums to break away from Ukraine and establish their own independent republics. Even before these breakaway referendums passed, the post-coup interim Ukrainian president declared war on these largely Russian-affiliated regions with the newly formed National Guard of Ukraine, which had been created from some of the worst neo-Nazi elements of the Maidan protests. The newly installed Ukrainian national security leader, also known as Andriy Parubi, who we've been talking about, su supported this operation. 
it was this post-coup government that really started this civil war. And it was a campaign of terror throughout the entire country against Russian-speaking people of Ukraine. Yeah, so given the coup and the history of racist anti-Russian policies and this ongoing you know, civil war that Ukraine had just started against the Donbass, it is no wonder that the people of you know, Donbass and Crimea both voted overwhelmingly for independence in 2014. 89% of the people in Donetsk voted for independence and 96% in Luhansk voted in favor of this resolution, even as these Ukrainian militias were advancing into the Donbass area. You know, the people of these regions determined that they did not want to be a part of the Ill illegitimate U.S.-backed Ukrainian government. And the protests against this newly installed U.S.-backed government were not just isolated to the Donbass region. In Odessa, neo-Nazis trapped protesters in the trade union building and burned 42 of them alive. Interviews after the fact with far-right nationalists show that they felt this was necessary and they had no regrets about killing these people. So again, this was just the beginning of a very bloody civil war in Ukraine, which is often referred to as having claimed over 14,000 lives. But what's interesting is that when the U.S. and the Western media refer to 14 or 15,000 people dead in Ukraine, they always insinuate that it was Russians that killed 15,000 Ukrainians. And this is really a damn lie and a criminal misrepresentation of history. Putin did not commit troops to defend these eastern regions of Ukraine during this period. In fact, Putin didn't even recognize these regions as independent regions until 2022. So he would have had no reason to militarily defend them. The Donbass wasn't Russian territory, and Putin didn't even recognize the Donbass as being aligned with Russia. This was a civil war inside Ukraine, launched by a U.S.-backed right-wing Western nationalist government against its Russian-identifying populations. This is the war that killed upwards of 14,000 people. So remember this history the next time you hear the U.S. media use these numbers to blame Russia for this violence. And this war began in the spring of 2014 as a direct result of Maidan. And at the same time, just coincidentally, Hunter Biden was awarded a position on the board of a Ukrainian gas corporation, Burisma. <laughs> Here's a clip from Oliver Stone's independent and highly scorned by the U.S. documentary, Revealing Ukraine. However, there were brave people who decided to invest in Ukrainian oil. The attention of world media is attracted by one company, Burisma Holdings. There are very, very interesting people on the board of directors of Burisma. For example, Hunter Biden is the son of the vice president of the United States. Of course, this state of affairs is welcome, but one detail interferes. The son of the U.S. vice president received his post almost immediately after the official visit of his father to Ukraine, in the light of obvious interest of Biden Sr. in everything that is happening in Ukraine. Ex-Vice President Joe Biden, his son Hunter Biden has a deal in Ukraine. Explain that. Yes. His son was and remains on the board of directors of one of the companies that is engaged in oil and gas production in Ukraine. So this also explains the economic interests of the Biden family. 
not only the son, but probably his high-ranking father as well. So that was independent documentary filmmaker Oliver Stone interviewing Viktor Medvedchuk. Medvedchuk is a Ukrainian lawyer and former political opposition leader to the 2014 coup government. He's in jail now. And Western media will tell you that he's a very close ally of Putin if you Google him. Although even Medvedchuk says openly in interviews that he and Putin disagree in many policy areas. Yes. So right after Joe Biden's first visit to Ukraine with the post-coup government, Hunter Biden is appointed on the board of Burisma. Interesting series of events. Yeah. Could you say corruption? (laughs) I mean, what else is there? I mean, what else is there to say? It's like, there he is on the board of Burisma right after Joe Biden comes to visit after years of planning for this coup in which Biden was heavily involved. What else is there to say? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Hunter Biden did not get this position for being an expert on oil and gas extraction. Right. We already knew that Biden had given the go-ahead on the coup, as Victoria Nuland said in that famous phone call, the quote, attaboy. Joe Biden would then become heavily involved in the internal affairs of Ukraine as a new president was elected in May, President Poroshenko. Poroshenko was not coincidentally a distinctly pro-West candidate and signed a partnership deal with the EU within a month after his election. In tandem, Poroshenko also accepted an IMF loan that the U.S. had been pushing along with its conditions. This IMF loan imposed severe austerity measures on the population, on Ukraine's population, such as raising the national age for receiving pensions, instituting a 50% hike in gas prices, and usurping much of Ukraine's land area for mineral extraction and natural gas production for export. This should not sound coincidental given the Biden family's oil investment in Ukraine. It's noteworthy that before U.S. interventionism in Ukraine, Ukraine was a huge exporter of grains, coal, and weapons. Ukraine was a major manufacturer of goods on the world market. But after the coup and the IMF restructuring, they were forced to import and buy many of the goods they once produced on their own. This was actually a period of deindustrialization, which made them completely dependent on the West, the EU, and the United States and the IMF for economic survival. Yeah. And it's noteworthy that the IMF always cripples local economies. I mean, that is their formula. They destroy the economic sovereignty of a country wherever they go. But it's always sold the IMF restructuring plan, what they're called structural adjustment policies. They're always sold to the public as a way to strengthen a country's economy and make it more democratic. (laughs) But actually, the opposite is true with the IMF and its structural adjustment policies. And on one of his post-coup trips to Ukraine in December 2015, Biden spoke directly to the Ukrainian parliament about the need for them to restructure their economy according to IMF mandates. And of course, all of these IMF provisions were a direct attack on the working people of Ukraine. 
Russia's trying to undermine the stability and sovereignty of Ukraine any way they can, including squeezing Ukraine financially, trying to undermine your economy. They view that as a cheaper way than sending tanks across the line of contact. So Ukraine must be strong enough to choose its own future strongly, strong defensively, strong economically, with a strong system of democratic governance. The United States is with you in this fight. We understand we're with you afar. It's much harder for you than it is for us. We've stepped up with official assistance to help backstop the Ukrainian economy. We've rallied the international community to commit a total of $25 billion in bilateral and multilateral financing to support Ukraine. It includes $2 billion in U.S. loan guarantees and the possibility of more. Yesterday, I announced almost $190 million in new American assistance to help Ukraine fight corruption, strengthen the rule of law, implement critical reforms, bolster civil society, advance energy security. That brings our total of direct aid to almost $760 million in direct assistance in addition to loan guarantees since this crisis broke out. And we were, that is not the end of what we're prepared to do if you keep moving. But for Ukraine to continue to make progress and to keep the support of the international community, you have to do more as well. The big part of moving forward with your IMF program, it requires difficult reforms, and they are difficult. Don't misunderstand that those of us who serve and other democratic institutions don't understand how hard the conditions are, how difficult it is to cast some of the votes to meet the obligations committed to under the IMF. It requires sacrifices that might not be politically expedient or popular, but they're critical to putting Ukraine on the path to a future that is economically secure, and I urge you to stay the course as hard as it is. Ukraine needs a budget that's consistent with your IMF commitments. Anything else will jeopardize Ukraine's hard-won progress and drive down the support for Ukraine from the international community, which is always tenuous. In the U.S., when they impose austerity, they don't have to care about whether it's politically expedient or not. They have no accountability to the general public. You know, Biden has tried to cut Social Security and Medicare his entire career. He's still working on privatizing Medicare. Yeah. You know, I just can't get over how patronizing it sounds. And I've seen the video of this clip, too, where he's standing in front of the Ukrainian parliament. And he's standing up there in front of hundreds of members of parliament as a member of the U.S. ruling class, lecturing another country about how they need to inflict poverty on their own people in order to achieve democracy. I feel like these clips are critically important for the U.S. public to hear. And it's also important to realize when Joe Biden is talking about how much money that the U.S. has already given Ukraine, that this proxy war with Ukraine did not begin in 2022 after the, quote, Russian invasion. When you look into history, you see that the U.S. and specifically the Joe Biden team, including his son, along with major Western global economic institutions, have been deeply politically and financially invested in Ukraine and this country's internal affairs since long, long before 2022. And when you understand this, you begin to understand that this war in Ukraine was on the map for the Biden team long before he came into office. Yeah, from the very beginning when Jake Sullivan and Joe Biden gave the attaboy on the Maidan coup, Joe Biden has played a central role in Ukraine. 
it is absolutely no coincidence that this war began under a Biden presidency. And Joe Biden and the newly elected Petro Poroshenko, president of Ukraine in May 2014, would become very close friends over the next two years. Biden visited Ukraine five times after the Maidan coup between 2014 and 2016, as his son was sitting on the board of Burisma, collecting a nice salary for probably just giving access to them to his father, really, which was, you know, Burisma was becoming a very powerful Ukrainian gas corporation during this time. Biden's last trip to Ukraine was in 2017, just prior to Trump assuming office. I find it interesting that Joe Biden visited Ukraine five times between 2014 and 2016. I mean, it was a regular stop for him uh, after Poroshenko came to power after the coup. So anyway, here's a recording of a phone call uh, between Biden and President Poroshenko in 2016. Hey, Petro, Joe, how are you? Very well indeed. As usual, when I hear your voice, my dear friend. So, uh, but you become a good friend and we understand each other. And uh, um, like I said, even after I'm out of this job, I'm, I'm still, I'm committed to the independence of, uh, of a new and non-corrupt nation state that God willing, kids are gonna be singing songs about you 30 years from now. <laughs> Joe, thank you very much indeed. And, uh... you think I'm, I'm not kidding. Think about this. You're the first one who has a chance to actually set up a corrupt, free, democratic nation of Ukraine. Jesus, what a hell, man. I'm going to go down as a great vice president. I'm not going down as a founder of a country, man, the father of a country. So I'll trade places with you, okay? I'd like I'm my very, grandkids to read about me the history books. Yours are going to read about you. Yeah, I'm very proud to hear that. If you allow, I'd just say this words to my wife. <laughs> she should also well, be I the same proud of me like you. <laughs> All right, I'll talk to you soon, Petro. Thank you. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. I've never heard any priming of a U.S. puppet sound so hilarious and clumsy and contrived in my life. And that's Joe Biden. He wishes he could change places so they'd be read about in the history books. <laughs> Kids are going to sing songs about Poroshenko for being the first non-corrupt <laughs> democratic leader of Ukraine. Uh, just to note, he's he's actually facing charges in Ukraine for corruption now. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> wow. Well, history does put perspective on things, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, here's another another call. This one's from 2017 between Poroshenko and Biden again. Okay. So just a year later. Dear Joe, that's a real great pleasure to hear you again. Petro, I miss talking to you every week. How are you, my friend? <laughs> Very well really indeed. All the time when I meet with uh, my team, I uh, mention you, your phrase about father founder of the nation. Yeah, you should know that you are very famous and very popular. Words. Those uh, those children of yours who may go to Penn for a year, uh, 
their children are going to know, and that generation is going to know who finally, finally gave Ukrainian people an opportunity to be firmly ensconced in the West as a progressive democracy. That's it's, that's uh, true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> What a sweet love affair. I mean, it really is endearing, isn't it? Yeah. Biden missed talking to him every week while he was vice president. <laughs> and you know, the media today wants us to believe that this war just started randomly in 2022 with nothing to do with Biden back in 2015 and 2016 talking to the president of Ukraine every single week. Every single week. Mm -hmm. And don't you have a quote about how often they talked? Yeah, yeah, this was a quote from Biden here. And we don't have any audio of this, but here's what he said. Quote, it is true I've only been here four times in two years, but I think we may have logged close to 1,000 hours on the telephone. I think I tend to be more in direct conversation for longer periods of time with the president than with my wife. I think they both regret that, but is it, it is important. <laughs> Oh and that's Biden talking about President Poroshenko. He spoke with him more than with his wife. So, yes, clearly this was a significant grooming operation that went on for years and years. And I mean, it's really disgusting, you know, the level of kissing up to Poroshenko and trying to inflate his ego and also trying to sell him this narrative about what amazing, what an amazing uncorrupt leader he is when he's really just doing the bidding of the IMF and the Biden family and enriching his son at Burisma and enriching the ruling class at large. Yeah, yeah. Poroshenko was just a puppet of the United States. What do you think was happening on these telephone calls? Biden was using him. You know, they were great friends, but Biden was also passing on United States policy that he wanted Poroshenko to carry out in Ukraine. Absolutely. I mean, Poroshenko was being totally coached and groomed in this role. And at the same time, this post-coup president was the same president that was further dividing the country politically by keeping the Russian language illegal and, you know, maintaining the IMF restructuring policies and empowering Nazis and the right sector to do the U.S.'s bidding and waging war against populations of the Donbass. Yeah, and there's a lot that's happened over the last eight years with this civil war in the Donbass, and we don't really have time to get into all of the details here. So I just, we want to quickly fast forward to recap, you know, there's been an ongoing war in the Donbass led by neo-Nazi militias like the Azov Battalion, which we talked about some in the last episode. And this ongoing war has been fully supported by the U.S. Congress, who authorized sending weapons to Ukraine under Obama but did not actually send any weapons until Trump was president. Right. So weapons shipments to Ukraine began under Trump. And Trump went along with this plan until he realized that he could use Hunter Biden's connection to Burisma as a way to expose dirt on Joe Biden in the run-up to the presidential election. Remember, this was right before the uh, election between Trump and Biden. And interestingly, for all the different reasons that Democrats could have impeached Trump after four solid years of corruption and lawlessness, 
The Democrats never impeached Trump for any myriad of reasons that they could have, but they did begin impeachment trials as soon as Trump paused weapons shipments to Ukraine. And you may remember this audio clip from our last episode. Adam Schiff, lead impeachment manager in 2020, made the case for why the U.S. needs a proxy war in Ukraine and why Trump stopping weapons shipments was so damaging for the United States. He refers to the war in the Donbass, 15,000 people killed because of Kremlin aggression. I think it's worth listening to this clip again in this episode. Here it is. This military aid, which has long enjoyed bipartisan support, was designed to help Ukraine defend itself from the Kremlin's aggression. More than 15,000 Ukrainians have died fighting Russian forces and their proxies. 15,000. And the military aid was for such essentials as sniper rifles, rocket-propelled grenade launchers, radar, night vision goggles, and other vital support for the war effort. Most critically, the military aid that we provide Ukraine helps to protect and advance American national security interests in the region and beyond. America has an abiding interest in stemming Russian expansionism and resisting any nation's efforts to remake the map of Europe by dint of military force, even as we have tens of thousands of troops stationed there. Moreover, as one witness put it during our impeachment inquiry, the United States aids Ukraine and her people so that we can fight Russia over there and we don't have to fight Russia here. So there you have it, an outrageous lie coming from a high-ranking U.S. government official, about 15,000 people dead due to, quote, Kremlin aggression and why the U.S. needs a proxy war in Ukraine. Remember, Adam Schiff gave this statement during Trump's impeachment trial in 2020. So this is what we were referring to earlier. Again, Putin didn't even recognize these regions in the Donbass as independent regions until 2022. So he would have had no reason to militarily invade them. The Donbass wasn't Russian territory, and Putin didn't even recognize it as being aligned with Russia. So when Adam Schiff talks about 15,000 dead due to Kremlin aggression, it's a complete cover-up for a U.S.-backed neo-Nazi force who has invaded the Donbass. And if you want more information on the neo-Nazi invasion of the Donbass, we have a couple sources to recommend for you. There's the independent journalism of Paul Moira and his documentary, Masks of the Revolution. He's a French journalist who goes into the Donbass and starts to look at the Nazi infiltration of the uh, Civil War. And he's kind of blindsided by it as he exposes it. He didn't really expect to find it. And it's clear that it really kind of like challenges a lot of his paradigms that he had going in. But he ends up creating this documentary called Masks of the Revolution. And it's it's pretty powerful. And another source is The Gray Zone, who's always doing excellent investigative reporting. Max Blumenthal and Aaron Maté have been doing incredible reporting on the war in the Donbass. Anyway, it's no coincidence that Joe Biden and Jake Sullivan are are launching a proxy war in the Ukraine today after decades of U.S. intervention there. And remember, the 15,000-some people that were killed in the Ukrainian Civil War occurred when the U.S.-backed right-wing Western nationalist government of Ukraine began its bloody invasion into the Donbass. 
into the Russian identifying regions of Ukraine. No Western media that we know of has covered this invasion, only independent journalists. And, you know, Western media doesn't really care about the casualties of U.S.-backed invasions. Big surprise there. So there's a really good reason you haven't heard about it. Yeah, this is just something, you know, especially since February of 2022, that they will not mention at all. Back to our history timeline a little bit here. There were two sets of international accords designed to stop this civil war in the Donbass. The Minsk I and Minsk II Accords, which both created ceasefires and terms for peace, but they were never adhered to by Ukraine's right-wing government. The violence has been really you know, non-stop since 2014. There have been some lulls in the fighting and shelling due to ceasefire agreements, but this war has never stopped. A large part of the reason why these ceasefires and the Minsk Accords were never upheld is because the war was being carried out by neo-Nazi battalions like the Azov Regiment of this Ukrainian National Guard, which was you know, created under the auspices of Andriy Perubi. And they were essentially autonomous from the Ukrainian government. They were just out there waging their war without much responsibility. And they had a nationalist you know, neo-Nazi agenda, and they were not going to let any kind of peace accords stop them from carrying out this really like ethnic cleansing against Russian-speaking people in the Donbass. And we'll talk more about this in a future episode when we bring the history timeline up to 2022. But um, I just thought it was noteworthy to say that President Zelensky campaigned on being the peace candidate and ending the civil war in the Donbass. And he attempted to end this war, but was basically threatened with his life and told that he needed to shut up and go away or else he would be killed if he tried to intervene in this war in the Donbass. So that just goes to show you how much power and autonomy these neo-Nazi forces had in waging this war on their own. And in addition to this, they had all this backing from the United States to keep the war going, to keep invading the Donbass, to keep shelling the innocent civilians in Donetsk and Luhansk. Here is Lindsey Graham and John McCain in late 2016 speaking to President Poroshenko and members of the Ukrainian military. I admire the fact that you will fight for your homeland. Your fight is our fight. 2017 will be the year of offense. All of us will go back to Washington and we will push the case against Russia. Enough of a Russian aggression. It is time for them to pay a heavier price. Our fight is not with the Russian people, but with Putin. Our promise to you is to take your cause to Washington. Inform the American people of your bravery. 
and make the case against Putin to the world. I believe you will win. I am convinced you will win, and we will do everything we can to provide you with what you need to win. Я вірю в те, що ви виграєте, переможете. Я переконаний в тому, що ви переможете, і ми вам допоможемо всіма можливими засобами. Ви успішні не через обладнання, але через вашу відважність. Because we cannot allow Vladimir Putin to succeed here. Because if he succeeds here, he will succeed in other countries. Я вам дуже дякую. І весь світ за цим слідкує. І весь цим світ за цим слідкує, тому що ми не можемо дозволити Володимиру Путіну тут перемогти. Адже якщо він тут переможе, він зможе це зробити і в інших країнах. So here are Lindsey Graham and John McCain spreading U.S. propaganda in Ukraine, blaming this civil war on Russia, when, remember, this is 2016. Russia has not invaded Ukraine. They do not bring in massive amounts of Russian troops until February of 2022. So I think it's important to note just how the U.S. is already shaping this as a war against Russia, when it's in reality it is a bloody civil war being carried out by Ukraine on their own population. Exactly. Uh, also noteworthy is that Amy Klobuchar was present during this speech. So this was very much a bipartisan affair. You know, you have Amy, you have John McCain, the Republican and then you have, you know, Lindsey Graham, a Republican, and then of course, you know, the whole Joe Biden team. So this whole Ukraine operation has been a bipartisan affair for a very long time. Uh, the military and strategic support for Ukraine has been bipartisan, although the political operation has largely been led by the Democrats. And if you have any doubt that these are Nazi or neo-Nazi groups and not just right-wing groups, please go back and listen to our full episode one on Ukraine to get a better sense of the history, because it's where we really outline and lay out the history of the Azov Battalion, Svoboda, the right sector, and the history of Stefan Bandera in Ukraine. And next, we have a clip from Time Magazine correspondent Simon Schuster reporting from Ukraine in 2019 in his investigative report on white supremacist militias that are recruiting people to join their fight. I think it's interesting that, you know, Time is a very mainstream magazine, but this is before the Ukraine issue was so heavily propagandized for the U.S. public. So I think that's why, you know, we're about to hear Simon Schuster speak about things clearly and honestly. At their public events, one thing that surprised me was how many Ukrainians tend to see Azov not as militants or extremists, but as war heroes. In Kiev, the capital, I watched an Independence Day parade where veterans of the Azov Battalion marched alongside other volunteer militias surrounded by cheering crowds who thanked them for defending Ukraine against Russia. But even at the march, there were signs of the far-right ideology that's so common inside Azov. 
The symbols on their flags have been especially controversial. Azov says it combines the letters I and N for idea of nation, but extremism experts see it as an emblem of Nazism. The official symbol of Azov, it's a version of Wolfsangel. It was one of the um, symbols of one of uh, SS division during the World War II. It is one of uh, more or less usual symbols for neo-Nazi groups all over the world. And it's not just about their symbols. When it was founded in 2014, Azov drew many of its commanders and recruits from Ukraine's most notorious far-right groups, including outright neo-Nazis. We basically recruited everyone who could hold weapons in their hand when Ukrainian state was paralyzed and the defense of Ukrainian state was totally in the hand of Ukrainian volunteers. So there were many war adventurers, um, uh, guys who believed that uh, they are uh, on a kind of ideological tour to save maybe uh, the future of the West and so on and so forth. Or so the, the future of the white race? Or, yes, yes. Azov's paramilitary wing is now a major fighting force, with its own bases and training grounds near the front lines of the war against pro-Russian forces. I mean, this clip pretty much speaks for itself. It's, it's just, you know, the history of the Azov battalion that really mobilized in 2014 after the Maidan coup and has played a very prominent role in the government ever since. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, in keeping with this pledge that you heard by Lindsey Graham and John McCain, under Trump, the United States escalated its intervention by sending arms to the neo-Nazi battalions, and the United States pushed Ukraine to continue its offensive in the Donbass. But, you know, things really went into overdrive with this provocation once Biden was elected. And this had always been planned to be a democratic war you know, War of the Democratic Party. Obama had paved the way for Queen Hillary, who they expected to win in 2016, but the election didn't go the way they had predicted, so these plans for an all-out proxy war in Ukraine with Russia were essentially stalled. Right. All of this planning and preparation had happened under an Obama presidency. Yeah, yeah Obama set up Maidan... The main actors were Newland and Biden, but Obama was the president. This coup was part of Obama's State Department's you know, agenda. And the documentary Revealing Ukraine by Oliver Stone, which we've mentioned earlier, also implicates Hillary Clinton in this whole affair. And here's a clip. The Russians were successful. They accomplished what they set out to do. They had an objective to sow discord and divisiveness within our society at large and to help uh, Donald Trump, and they succeeded. The biggest mistake people make when talking about the Trump-Russia collusion, sort of MSNBC Russiagate narrative. The Kremlin offered dirt to the Trump campaign. The president's campaign said yes to that offer. That's no longer an open question. All that stuff has now been proven. They think that it started election night 2016. In fact, it's part of a much longer series of events. When Barack Obama was elected. I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear. Hillary Clinton comes in as Secretary of State. I just wanted to have a chance to publicly say thank you. I think Hillary will go down as one of the finest Secretary of States we've had. And at that point, she sets up a private email system. 
I think now it's pretty clear that part of what was going on is they were setting up the underpinnings that would set up the Madan. She introduced a program called Civil Society 2.0. And what we've done with Secretary Clinton's Civil Society 2.0 program is we've taken one of America's undeniable strengths, the strength of our technology and of our innovators, and we've put them to work in service of our diplomatic goals. This is a way for the U.S. government to work directly with NGOs like International Renaissance, funded by George Soros. And while working with those NGOs, fund money to them, but also training, and the kind of training that would be used when the Madan would start. So that was investigative journalist Lee Stranahan describing the setup of Maidan and how Hillary may have been influential in that using her private email server. And then Alec Ross, one of Hillary's senior advisors, describing Civil Society 2.0, which was a program that was active in Ukraine and may also have been influential in carrying out the Maidan coup. Right. So this is really when the seeds of Russiagate were born. It was during the Obama presidency when the coup happened. So Obama was president during the 2014 coup. But the plans were for Hillary to run for president after that, and then to continue this work in Ukraine after the 2016 election. But of course, their plans were interrupted when Trump won. However, even with Hillary's defeat, the Democratic operatives were still able to take advantage of the situation and manufacture consent for this coming proxy war with Russia through the creation of Russiagate. For four years, the liberal wing of the media, MSNBC, CNN, etc., consistently blamed Russia for everything bad that had happened. You know, Trump's election was Russia's fault. Not because Hillary ran a terrible campaign and failed to offer any meaningful change for the working class. No, because of Russia. This was Putin was helping Trump. You know, Russia, Russia, Russia. That's all we heard. Rachel Maddow was at the forefront of this propaganda blitz for several years. Russia, Russia, Russia. Yeah. And then there was this huge, you know, James Coney FBI investigation. I mean, it dominated the media forever. And this is the point in the story where the music changes and gets ominous and dark. So we could have picked one of thousands of clips showing Rachel Maddow's obsession with Russia. Here's just a very brief one from 2017. And we've talked about this on the show in the past a little bit. Russia for years in this country has actively promoted the secession of Texas. They've promoted the quirky Texas secessionist movement to the point of inviting Texas secessionists to Russia, paying their way to come to meetings and conferences in Russia so the Russian government could help them promote the independent republic of Texastan. <laughs> Texas Stan. Oh my God. The links that Russia, I mean, the links that Rachel Maddow will go to to dig up dirt on Russia. I mean, she made it her life's mission to dig up and manufacture any and every possible piece of dirt on Russia that she could for years at the expense of every other major news story in the United States that she could have been reporting on. <laughs> Maybe we can deport her to Texas, Stan, once they secede. <laughs> Watch out, Texas, Stan. Here comes Rachel Maddow. I'm sure she'd fare really well there. <laughs> With all the Russians in Texas, Stan. Right. <laughs> 
anyway, um, here's just to show kind of how you know hawkish the mainstream media is. Here's Max Boot, a Washington Post reporter, speaking on Morning Joe in June of this year, 2022. And this is really par for the course of mainstream U.S. coverage. It's absolutely essential. And I think the key here is we have to understand that we're, we're making a mistake in the way that we think about the war, because we keep thinking about it as their war. The Ukrainians are fighting. We need to think about it as our war. Putin is waging war on the West. He is trying to destroy the rules-based international order that we Americans, we Europeans, we all stand for this. This is a direct threat to all of us. And we need to understand this is not a foreign aid project. This is not charity. This is self-defense. This is the front line of freedom right here in the Donbass. The Ukrainians are fighting and dying for all of us. We need to step up. And to echo what Ed Luce was saying, it is unacceptable that right now the Ukrainians are being outgunned 10 to 1 in artillery, 10 to 1. They are losing over 100 soldiers a day. The United States has not seen those kinds of losses since World War II. The Ukrainians are willing to fight. They are willing to die. They are defending their land. They are standing up to one of the most evil dictators in the world. But they don't have the weapons they need to get the job done. They have just enough to prevent a Russian victory, but they don't have enough to defeat the Russians, to win for Ukraine. And that is unacceptable. All of us need to step up. The Europeans in particular, as Joe suggested, because uh, they are doing less than we are. But we need to step up, too. We're not providing Gray Eagle drones that the Ukrainians need. We're not providing as many multiple launch rocket systems as they need. All of us collectively can be and should be doing more because we need to understand this is our fight that the Ukrainians are on the front lines of. Uh, that's so painful. This is our fight. This is our war. You are Ukraine. Ukraine is us. <laughs> internalize that you are one and the same. So fly your Ukrainian flag and start a GoFundMe to get those multiple launch rocket systems to Ukraine. <laughs> you are Raytheon. Raytheon <laughs> is you. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. It's just, it's yeah. No words. Um, so actually it's, you know, not surprisingly, a few media analysts have noted how the U.S. mainstream media, corporate media, is oftentimes actually more aggressive in its posturing towards Russia than the U.S. government is and is actually like, you know, wagging the dog, as they would say, like mm -hmm. actually pushing yep. the U.S. government into, um, you know, more weaponry and more hostility, uh, more escalation. Basically driving us recklessly toward, toward World War III without any concern for what the outcome might be. Basically, I feel like the, you know, the, the corporate media is an unofficial um, public relations arm for the military industrial complex. Yeah, that makes sense. And just listening to that clip of Max Boot, he was all about getting those weapons to Ukraine. Um, I just wanted to play another clip here. This is Biden in June of 2022 speaking at the NATO summit in Madrid about what else? Russia. The reason why gas prices are up is because of Russia. Russia, Russia, Russia. The reason why the food crisis exists 
is because of Russia. Russia not allowing grain to get out of Ukraine. There you have it. Russia is the universal scapegoat for everything bad that happens in the United States. And the U.S. public has been groomed over the last decade, at least, to hate Russia. This propaganda campaign has been going on at least as long as the United States has been heavily intervening in Ukraine. Ukraine, we know, has been a U.S. proxy since at least 2014, even though the CIA, the CIA fingerprints were all over the Orange Revolution all the way back in 2004. Yeah, with all this media propaganda, you know, once Biden was in office, the public was very much primed for a conflict with Russia. They were ready for this proxy war after over four years of relentless anti-Russia propaganda. Jake Sullivan and Victoria Newland, the architects of the 2014 Maidan coup, as we've said before, were given high positions within the Biden administration. Once Biden was elected, the old gang was back, other than McCain, who had died. I'm sure he would have supported this war as well if he were still alive. You know, the only difference between what was planned under Obama and what is happening today is that Biden is now president instead of Hillary, who was supposed to carry out these actions that the Biden administration did today, leading to the war in Ukraine. And we'll get into that more in the next episode. One more time, award-winning documentary filmmaker and international journalist, John Pilger. Yes, you must remember, though, that above all, this is a war of propaganda. And I would think almost nothing one reads in the Western press uh, about, about the invasion of Ukraine is to be trusted. Uh, a skepticism... Uh, well, the skills of skepticism, but I'm not sure the reading public, the watching public, particularly in the United States, possesses. That is crucial now because nothing can be believed. Every day when I scan the media, I, I look at the source. It's Ukrainian intelligence. The, inter the propaganda operation in Ukraine is quite brilliant. Uh, they've managed to... Uh, invent a chemical warfare attack when there wasn't one. They've managed to, uh, um, to, to, uh, to keep out of the, uh, the Western media the fact that so much of, of Ukraine is infested, if not run by, but infested with, with true extremists, fascists, neo-Nazis, they are called. The United States may be about to fight you're saying or to uh, encourage a war in which it plays a leading role in Ukraine. What to remember here is the US doesn't give a damn about Ukraine. Ukraine is simply a pawn in this, but the object as the US Defense Secretary is, and I paraphrase him, is to destroy the Russian Federation. That's been known for a long time. That is probably the most dangerous project in the world today. In the next couple episodes, we'll be looking at the costs of war. Wars launched by the ruling class against the world's poor and working classes. We'll also be looking at the environmental costs of war and specifically the United States as a war economy and its contribution contribution to global carbon emissions. As the U.S. currently ramps up for war against China, 
in addition to war in Ukraine. We feel that understanding who benefits and who suffers under capitalism and military accumulation is essential if we're going to be able to fight it and to survive for another generation. And in order to really understand what's at stake in the future, we have to understand the history, which is why we've focused so much on history in this episode and the last one. So we can really get past the propaganda that you see in the mainstream Western media. And that's why we're focusing on Ukraine in these episodes. And it's why we need your support. So um, this takes a lot of time, obviously, to go against the mainstream narrative and to do all this independent research to understand, you know, who the real players are and what the motivations are behind this war in Ukraine, this war in China and everything else that is being shoved down our throats um, by the corporate media and the military industrial complex. So please support our work at patreon.com and become a subscriber if you aren't already. These are dire times that we're living in, and we can't do this work without you. Crawdads and Taters is a self-produced and directed production by Aaron McCarley and Burian Sundahl. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public.